And as we walk through this, I want you to notice any specific parallels. I want you to be, be alert and be aware for any specific parallels as we study Sodom and Gomorrah and some current parallels to our current society, culture, and the nation that we live in, America. Now, before we jump into the text, I want to give you a quick recap of what Pastor Billy talked about last week. Pastor Billy talked about Genesis 18. And in Genesis 18, we see God pleading with Abraham. And God said, Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom because of their grave sin. But you see, Abraham's nephew Lot lived in Sodom. So he said, God, would you please? He said, God, if you can find 50 righteous men, God, would you be willing to spare Sodom? And because of Abraham's obedience and God honoring that, God said, okay, Abraham, if I can find 50 righteous men, I will spare Sodom. But you see, Abraham knew that there were not 50 righteous men. So he said, God, if you can find 40 or 30 or 20 or even 10, God, if you can find 10 righteous men, will you spare Sodom? And God said, yes, Abraham, for you, I will do so. So God sent his two angels down to Sodom to survey the land to see how bad the sin had gotten. Now, in Genesis chapter 13, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about this new character that's going to be injected into our story in our series this morning, this character of Lot. And now I want you to remember that Abraham, for most of his life, was unable to have children. So even though Lot was his nephew, he treated him like a son. And in Genesis 13, we see Lot becoming a man, and Abraham and Lot are living together. But Abraham said, look, he said, we, you have your own land and cattle, and I have my own land and cattle. There's not, a room for, not enough room for the both of us. He said, Lot, I want you to choose any land that you want, and you can name it, and it will be yours. And what did Lot do? He had all this land to choose from, and Lot decides to choose land that was right beside Sodom. Now, all that we know about Sodom to this point is what we see in chapter 13. It says, now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So first we see Lot move toward the direction of Sodom, and then he moves outside the city of Sodom until eventually he moved inside the city of Sodom. And Gomorrah, which leads us to our first point this morning. The first deadly effect of sin is, drum roll, do we have it? Oh, I think the TV turned off. Oh, didn't turn off. Okay. Let me get this to go away. The first deadly effect of sin today is that sin leads to the path of destruction. Now you see, Lot knew better because he had what we would call home training, okay? Abraham raised him from the ground up. But you see, Lot's heart was in Sodom long before his body was ever there. And you see, Lot fell in love with the world and he couldn't overcome it. So we're going to dive right into this text in Genesis chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 1. And I'm going to remind you again, this text is pretty heavy. So just brace yourselves. Genesis chapter 19, and you can see it on the screen. It says, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered the house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, 
all of the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called, Lot, where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Folks, the second deadly effect of sin that we're going to discuss this morning is that sin perverts what God intended for good. Now, folks, I just want to tell you, we as the pastoral staff and shepherds and teachers of Burning Bush Baptist Church, we are called to preach the full counsel of God. Okay, that means we are not just called to preach certain parts, but the whole book. And I'll be honest, sometimes when tougher passages like this, it's, we're tempted to be like, ah, oh, that's uncomfortable. This is, this is really like, it's kind of harsh. But folks, we cannot skirt some of these issues, okay? Here at this church, we are not scared. We don't run from tough issues. We have to face them head on. And it's important that we as Christians, we do not water down the inerrant, infallible truth of God's word. And this particular text is so relevant with society today and the times that we're living in. So folks, uh, last night, I'll just be honest with you, I was up late, late, late. And I was like, Lord, how deep do we need to go into this? Because on the surface, I think we're all going to pretty much agree, agree on this. But folks, these times that we're living in are calling for drastic measures. And we have to really think and process through how do we handle some of these situations when we are dramatically thrust into situations with people that believe differently than way we do. So as we walk through this, please don't judge me right off the bat. Please don't make a quick judgment. Let's, let's walk through this together and see what the Lord has for us. So we know that these people were sinning greatly against the Lord. In the text, we see it. The sin that they were causing that was so grievous was that they were committing acts of sodomy, or what we consider acts of homosexuality. Now see, sodomy is literally, it literally means the sin of Sodom. So where do, where do we get the cultural name sodomy from? We get it from the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in verse 5, not only do we see them committing homosexual acts, but look at verse 5. We see the men trying to sexually assault the angels. Like, are you crazy? Like, we talked about these angels last week. These aren't just any guys, okay? These are bad dudes. Like, you, if there's anything in the world that you don't want to do, you probably don't want to do this. Now, folks, we know that just 18 chapters prior in Genesis 1, we have a biblical picture of marriage, okay? And we know that marriage is between a man and a woman and that God gave us the gift of sex for marriage, and that, too, is supposed to be between a man and the woman. But back to our sin effect, sin perverted what God intended for good. Now, this just wasn't happening in the Old Testament. It happened in the New Testament, too. And as Paul was living in the city of Rome and dealing with the Roman church, he faced the same problems. Listen to this in Romans chapter 1. Paul says, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even the women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves their due penalty for their error. So one thing I just want to point out very clear so we're all on the same page here. The Apostle Paul is making a bold statement that all sexual fornication is sin. 
And see, sometimes in the church, we like to read this passage in Romans 1, and we like to highlight one specific thing and turn a blind eye to the other. No, he's saying um, heterosexual fornication, a homosexual fornication, any sexual interaction outside of marriage is sin. Both of these lifestyles are in direct conflict with the scripture and the teaching. Now, some of you parents at home or in the room might be like, man, Joseph, this is, this is pretty rough. Like, I got kids in here. Like, like I don't know that they, they should be hearing this. But friends, can I just be honest with you? As somebody that works with children and teens a lot, they are exposed to things that are for adults so much younger than we were when, when, when you were a kid, okay? It is seeking them. It is coming after them everywhere. And I, I, I just got a hunch that if you sit down with your grandchild or your child and you have a conversation with them and you really ask them some tough questions, you will be shocked to know how much they have already been exposed to. And you see, for the longest time in the church, we have been playing defense, okay? We've been playing defense, and, and because of this, we've seen pornography run rampant throughout not only our culture, but in the church. And they're being exposed to phones and social media and school and all these different things. So if you have a kid that's toward the end of elementary, beginning of middle school, they're being exposed to these things at such a young age. And so parents, grandparents, we have two options. We can, one, Play defense and allow culture and society and school and friends that aren't Christians to educate our children on some of these adult topics. Or we can play offense and proactively teach them about what God says about love and marriage. Which brings us to our third point this morning is that sin desensitizes you. Okay, when you see something crazy, at first you're like, you see a car wreck, you're like, oh my goodness, like I can't believe that just happened, like wow, and it does something to you. But as you see it over and over, people that serve in the military, you see things that at first they just make you just go, oh my gosh, but the more you see it and you see it over and over, you become desensitized to it, and it does less and less to you. See, Lot had become desensitized to his surroundings. And folks, I'm just going to be honest with you. This text of what we're talking about today is so offensive to our current culture. But here's the thing. It is still the infallible, inerrant truth and word of God. We currently live in this cancel culture. You might have heard this term. It's basically this thought that anything that remotely disagrees with something that somebody else believes they're going to cancel it, okay? Whether it's Aunt Jemima's pancakes or TV shows about puppies that are cops or whatever, we live in this cancel culture. And people are asking the question, like, where does this end? And folks, we as the church must not water down God's message because it's opposed to people's lifestyle. No, we have to be rooted and, and grounded in the word, We're not trying to make people feel better. We're trying to ultimately take them to Jesus so that they can one day be in heaven with him. And folks, I don't know if you realize, I'm sure you do, but culture is staging an all-out war, an attack on the nuclear home. We have cultural Marxism that is spreading rapidly throughout the country, and the father is being displaced. And here's the thing, folks, for, you, for, for those of you that have young children, it's everywhere. It's not just on the news. It's on cartoons. It's on video games. It's on this little cell phone right here. It is everywhere, and it is all out attacking our, 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 our values and our religious beliefs. And society is trying to desensitize us and make us think that these things that are anti-gospel are okay and that we have no say about it. 
And pretty soon, we're not there yet, but we need to get ready because pretty soon, this cancel culture is going to say, you church of Jesus Christ, you are spewing hate speech and bigotry. And they're going to point their finger at us. They're going to take away whatever they can. And we are really going to find out who the true Christians are. Now, here's another thing. Some of you be like, I boycott. Man, we don't need to boycott everything just because they disagree with us. Like, we can't expect the world to look like the word, okay? They are the world for a reason. Jesus said, I'm calling you to be in the world, but not of the world. So the reason I'm putting you in the world is that, so that you can take the gospel to the world. So let's ask ourselves, how did Jesus handle tough situations like this when he ate with sinners? What was his approach and he did two things. Jesus led and spoke and showed grace and truth. Now we're going to start with truth because it is first and foremost of importance. But we as the church and as Christians, we must know truth and we must stand on the truth. Now notice I didn't say my truth or your truth. There's this saying where everybody says, well, my truth is blah, 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 blah. And friend, as much as I love you, okay, you don't particularly want to hear my truth and and I don't particularly want to hear your truth. Why? Because we are flawed humans. The only truth that is eternal and that is everlasting is God's truth. And this truth will remain throughout eternity. And see, we as Christians hurt those that we love when we do not share the truth with them. So Jesus said, I want you to be firm and uh, firmly planted on truth. Then I want you to show grace. And this is the part where it gets tough. Now with that said, we've got to know what our goal is. What's our goal as a Christian and as a church? Is our goal to shame people or to point fingers or to win an argument? No, folks, that's not at all. See, the goal, I don't know if you realize, but the goal is to win these people to Jesus so that God can change their life. Because you see, when Jesus came to the earth and he died on the cross, he didn't just die for you and me, us the Christians, no. Jesus died for Sodom. Jesus died for those in the world that do not know him, that are living some of these lifestyles. And he expects us to share this truth with him. Folks, we know that all humans are created in God's holy and beautiful image. Jesus died for them too. So maybe somebody in the room today, maybe somebody watching online is questioning their sexuality. Which you might be like, man, talk, talk about that in church. Folks, it happens a lot more than you can think or realize. I know we have conversations with people inside our body and outside our body. This is, a, this is a worldwide thing. So friend, if that's you today, the first thing I would say to you is, man, God loves you. Jesus loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you. And folks, if we're going to encounter and engage with these people, it's important that we have the right approach. You see, we can stand on God's word and stand on truth and still be hospitable and show love to one another. If I'm just being honest, one of the most frustrating things during this time of just racial tension in our country, we are really at a, at, at a, a crossroads. And one of the most frustrating things is seeing Christians in the, the church at large be focused more on winning an argument or winning a debate rather than showing empathy and showing love to a hurting community. See, Jesus says, hey, look, I want you to hurt with those who hurt, and I want you to mourn with those who mourn. He didn't say, I want you to hurt with them if you agree with them, because here's the catch, guys. When we show love to them, even if we disagree with them, when we show love and we put an arm around a community and say, hey, man, I, I can't identify with your pain, but I'm here for you. When we do that, that 
uh, brings merit to our message and it paves the way to a conversation. We can show empathy and still disagree and be hospitable. Because folks, if people can't come to the church for truth, where else then can they go? Are we not supposed to be the hospital for the hurting and the hopeless? Do we want them to attend our services? Absolutely. Well, Joseph, what if it makes us uncomfortable and they live different lifestyles than we do? Folks, if they can't come to the church for truth, where else can they go? So we want them to join us. Now, what about when they ask if they can become a part of our fellowship and they want to be members? That's when we got to say, hey, we got to sit down and we got to have a conversation. So, folks, if you encounter, no, 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 let me stop. When you encounter somebody that's living a different lifestyle than you, and let me tell you who these people are, man, you know. They're your friends, they're your brothers, they're your sons, daughters, nephews, grandchildren, you name it. These are people that we love. And the first place of starting is not to win the debate or have an argument or win the discussion. We've got to have a rational and adult biblical conversation. We've got to meet them where they are. Because let's be honest, some of these people, they're confused. Some of them think, notice I said think, that they were born a certain way. And not all, and hear me well, not all, but just if I can be honest, some of the people that I know living some of these different lifestyles have sexual trauma from their childhood that led to their current lifestyle. And folks, some of these people are asking questions and they want to know what the church has to say. So we have to have a conversation. What do we say when we get to that conversation? The first thing that we need to do is we need to start with Jesus. We don't need to start with, hey, this big sin, because if you start there, you're never going to get around that. We need to start not at third base, but at first base and say, hey, look, man, the first thing you got to realize is that me and you, we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and we're all separated from him. But I got good news. The good news is that Jesus came to die so that you and I can have life. And folks, the Holy Spirit of God is the only thing that can heal and reconcile a broken person. Only Him. Only Jesus can change a person's sinful desires and want-tos. And when He does, and I believe that He still can, we need to walk with these people hand in hand, helping them through their transformation. It's just like a, an alcoholic. An alcoholic doesn't go from getting saved to... Uh, to fully overcoming alcoholism overnight. No, they're still tempted. It's a process. Their transformation and sanctification is a process and it takes time. Only God can heal and restore. So here we are in this text. They're trying to sexually assault the angels. Let's continue in the, in the text. Look at verse six. It says, Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters, oh my goodness. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you would like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Wow. The fourth effective sin that we see this morning is that sin attacks your values and it strips you of your morality. Man, I don't know about you, but when I read this text, I became angry. I now have a child, and my sole responsibility of a, as a parent is to protect that child and to give my child what's best. But you see, Lot wasn't focused on what was best for his children. He was focused on what was best for himself. So as parents, 
We've got to ask ourselves, are we really giving our child what's best for them? Now, some of you might hear that. You might be like, you know what, Joseph? I'm not the best parent in the world, but at least I don't, I don't do that. I would never even consider that. And friend, I believe you, and I, I hope that's the case. But we need to ask ourselves, do we really want what's best for our grandchildren? Or do we want what's best for our children? Because, see, sometimes what happens is what, what, what we say is best for the children becomes intertwined and entangled with really what we want. Not what God wants, but what we want and what we think is best for them. So I ask you, are we really doing what's best for them? Or are we giving them the things that we didn't have when we were their age and what we wanted? Maybe we're pushing them toward uh, whatever's cool at the moment or whatever we think that will bring them accolades or success and we're pushing them toward all these things. I want you to do this and become a professional at the age of 12 and that. And, and we're pushing our children to all these things that they sort of like and we really, really, really love. And if they're going to be honest, they don't love as much as we do. But the only reason that they're doing it is because they want mom and dad's acceptance. Are we really giving our children what we need? And some of you might be asking, man, like Joseph, some of these things you're talking about, are they all bad? Like these activities? No, they're not all bad. Unless they're bad when they take the first priority of faith. If they are competing with level of importance of faith, then yes, it's a problem. And we've got to monitor this, folks. We've got to be careful. We're, we're pushing, hey, you've got to be great at this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to blah, blah, blah. And we're talking about all this other stuff, and we're, we're pouring zero into their spiritual lives. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the priority? And is this going to help them in their faith, or is it going to take away? Because, folks, I don't know if you've, you've caught on, but we're living in a tough world, and we have to raise our children to be prepared for it. And you see, sometimes if things take away from what matter most, they can be detrimental to the spiritual transformation and maturation process of a child. So I ask you, what is your number one goal as a parent or as a grandparent? Is your number one goal to help build them this identity uh, that's built around popularity and success and being cool and being first string here or first string there? We could take pictures of it and put it on Facebook, and there's nothing wrong with that, but sometimes we do that not to bring shine to the kid, but we do that, big, hey, look at me and how, how much stuff my kid can do. Is that our goal, or is our goal to create fully devoted, completely committed followers of Jesus Christ? Is our goal to teach them what it means to find their identity? Man, not what in the world says it's successful, but are to find their identity in Jesus. You see, sometimes we say that we value faith and church and God, but our actions don't always follow suit. And I'm not talking about just bringing them to church on Sunday, Sundays and Wednesdays. No, I'm talking about are you modeling this for your children at home on Monday through Friday? Fathers, grandfathers, are you teaching your children what it means to love your wife, to live a life of prayer and humility? Are we modeling this for our children? Because you see, Satan is after the home. And the details of your life determine what you are truly devoted to. And it is your job to prepare them so that when the enemy comes, they are founded, they are grounded on the word of God, and they are un touchable. Because when sin gets in the, in the camp, our morality and our values begin to wither away. So let's continue in the text. 
So here what we see is we see that the men of Sodom, they're like, look, we don't just want the angels and the girls. Lot, we're going to take you too. We want everybody. So here's the cool part of the story, okay? The angels open the door with their, all their superpowers, and they like strike all the men, and the men turn blind. And the angels say, they say, hey, look, look, you've got to get out of here, okay? Let's look at verse 15. It says, with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and the hand of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain to the mountains or you will be swept away. Now, what does Lot do? Lot begins to hem haw. Oh, God, I don't know. I can't go to the mountains. God, I'm going to die. He's like, can I go to this city up the road called Zor? Like, it's a small city. And Angel's like, okay, Lot. Like, because of Abraham, when we're trying to help you out, we'll show you grace. But here's the thing, Abraham, or Lot. We cannot destroy Sodom until you reach the land of Zor. So, look at verse 23. It says, by the time Lot reached the Zor... The sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities in the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. Which brings us to our sixth deadly effect this morning. Folks, sin will bring destruction, wrath, and judgment. This picture that you can see up there, sorry for you people at home, you can't see it. But it's a picture of sulfur raining down from the hand of God on the land of Sodom. And if you look at the literal translation, this is literally God sending rain of sulfur out of the heavens. You see, fire and brimstone came directly from the Lord as he was judging the people of Sodom for their grave sins. And you see, in Scripture, fire and sulfur are associated with God's judgment on the earth and his future eternal judgment for those that will be in hell. And to this day, people claim that sulfurous flames populate the area around the Dead Sea where Sodom and Gomorrah was. And, and what a powerful reminder as the, in the aroma when you're in the area where all this took place still to this day. May they remember the cost of their sin. See, folks, if there's one thing we can take away today, it's that sin has consequences. God hates sin. Yes, he's a God of love. Yes, he's a God of grace. But he is also a God of wrath, and he's a God of justice. And he will not be mocked. And sin has consequences. Which leads us to verse 25 as we conclude in the text. It says, Thus he overthrew those cities in the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities. Look at verse 26. It says, But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. The seventh point this morning is that sin will ultimately lead to death. Here up on the screen, you can see this picture that stands today on Mount Sodom near the Dead Sea. And it's a picture of Lot's wife. And you see, Lot's wife, I don't know if you caught it in the text, they had one command. They said, I want you to leave the city and I don't look 
back. Lot, you hear me? I want you to leave the city and don't look back. What did she do? She looked back, and in a split second, she became a pillar of salt. Some of you might be thinking, like, man, Joseph, like, that's, that's pretty harsh. Like, maybe she was looking back for her daughters. Maybe she was looking back at her home. But you see, she was unable to leave the lifestyle that was so rooted within her. How do I know? Because Jesus even references this. He tells us in Luke 17, 32. He said, remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. He says, don't look back. When I come into your life and I change and I transform you, don't look back to your old ways. Never return. Don't relapse. Don't look back. Keep moving forward. Keep your eyes focused on me and the new life that I have for you. Don't worry about your old selfish, sinful ways. Focus on my will and surrender to me. And as the text concludes... In verse 27, we see, Sodom, or we see Abraham the next day waking up and standing on the mountaintop over Sodom. And the scripture says that smoke was rising from the land, smoke like a furnace. You look at verse 29. You can read it with me. It says, so when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived Folks, Lot didn't have his life spared because of all of his good deeds. I can promise you that. Lot's life was spared because of Abraham's obedience, Abraham's faith. When life got tough and faith got hard, Abraham remained faithful. Lot was faithless. Now, some of you today, as we conclude, you may say, Joseph, I'll be honest, that's probably the most dark sermon I've ever heard, and I I don't see the the bright day on the horizon. I don't see hope. And friend, if you're watching today, if you're in the room, you say, you know what, Joseph, and if I'm completely being honest, I am living in Sodom today. I am living a life that is in conflict and contradiction with the gospel, and I'm living in sin. I've never fully come to know Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And friend, if that's you today, God wants to know you. God desires to have a relationship with you. No matter how many sins you've committed, no matter how desensitized or how far gone you think you are, we see in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So friend, maybe today you need to step out in faith And say, Jesus, I'm leaving my old ways behind me. I'm not looking back. I'm moving forward. Maybe today, friend, you need to encounter salvation for the first time today. I would love to talk to you, to tell you how you can do it and how you can know that you will one day be in heaven with God. Maybe today, some of you in the church, you say, Joseph, I've been a Christian all my life, but over this pandemic, I've got some unconfessed sin, and it's burdening me. And it's stripping me of all my joy, stripping me of my worship. Friend, maybe you need to confess that sin to God today. Maybe you need to go to a brother and seek out accountability, seek out encouragement. Folks, as we conclude, I want to leave us with a question from the Apostle Paul. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of man or of God? See, these days that we're living in, they will be tough. And we will be tempted 
to seek the approval and the applause of man. But man's approval is fleeting. But the approval of God will last forever. Pray with me. Jesus, we come before you today. God, your word has spoken to our hearts and been very clear to us this morning. God, I pray for the brother or sister who's watching and listening to your word right now. God, I ask that your spirit would draw them. God, maybe there's somebody that needs to experience salvation and place their faith in you for the first time. God, if that's them, I ask that you would give them the courage and the boldness to step out in faith because, God, your spirit can heal and reconcile their lives. Father, I pray for the brother or the sister, God, that has some unconfessed sin in their life. God, would you send men and women from this church to be there for them, to hold them accountable, to hold them accountable and give them encouragement because this life we live is not easy. God, as a church and as Christians, God, may we not falter to the world as the world comes against us, but God, may we be firm and planted on your word. May we not water it down, but may we declare it boldly. God, we ask this in Jesus' holy and precious and most powerful name. Amen.